0: Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. I'm Paul Geesting, and for Episode 3, I'm welcoming back my friend and co-host, Bill Schmidt.
1: Yeah, hi, Paul. It's good to be back in conversation with you. And uh, Episode 2 was quite fascinating. You were launching us into the arena of metaphysics, and uh, you prepared us for the uh, central challenge of this podcast, I think, which is to seek new synergies between different realms of understanding, uh, especially uh physics and metaphysics now as i understood it the, the problem is that the science of physics is constantly revealing you know wonderful new even strange discoveries all the time but we're trying to grasp all that with metaphysics the rule the philosophical rules you know that uh uh physics follows or that we uh, try to impose on physics um we're trying to grasp the metaphysics based on our old model of metaphysics most people understand that uh, either not at all or uh, in rudimentary metaphysical terms like just the idea that every object is made up of matter and form uh, now you called this last week the doctrine of hylomorphism can you recommend us uh, or can you remind us for a minute of what you said about that doctrine of hylomorphism still having relevance today as in uh, your own professional field of mineralogy
0: well last time so i talked about four concepts that make up the sort of larger concept of hylomorphism um, not and not all of the not the entire complex of medieval or ancient metaphysics which would include things like act and potency that we'll that we'll get to eventually but I talk right. about so matter and form, of course, are what actually go into the term hylomorphism, and then substance and accidents. So, yeah. So there's there's a distinction between and I believe Thomas Aquinas in particular would use the term, a term that we would translate as substantial form, but there is a, a a sense that there's a most important form, and that's the that's the notion that's at work when uh, the the term transubstantiation was coined Ah, in reference to the Eucharist. So the idea is that, so at the opening of mass, we have this piece of bread laying on a patent and that's, that's what it is. It's substances that it's bread. That's the most important thing you can say about it. And if we looked at it in modern chemical terms, we'd say, yeah, it's carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and the form is that the carbon and hydrogen and oxygen are bound together in molecules of this type and, the, and approximately this many, and the physical internal structure is such. You know, the cellulose is stuck together in forms like this, and the starches are stuck together in forms like this. And altogether, to a medieval philosopher, that means that its substance is that it's bread. That's the you know, it's, it's not a rational soul. That would be, you know, if it certainly doesn't have a rational soul. It doesn't even have an animal or a vegetative soul. It's just right. an inner piece of matter used to be used to be the contents of a living thing, but now it's just sitting there and then, during the course of the mass, it, it undergoes this enormous several notches of change in the most important thing you can say about it because now it is the dwelling place of Almighty God as well as the soul and body and blood of this man, Jesus Christ, right. So it's it's the most important thing you can say about it has changed, and I think that from a modern point of view that sounds very strange because we use the word substance so much to mean chemical substance. yeah, And if we just hear that word off by itself, that's that's at least what I would tend to think it would mean. And that's not right. necessary. Possibly going forward, we might change some of the. It might it might be prudent to change some of the terminology about that, which is important to distinguish from. We're not deny, we're not changing our understanding of what the truth is underneath, it. we're using different words to express it that would make more sense to our contemporaries. That would be a very <laughs> a very important distinction to draw that I think a lot of people would refuse to draw um, yes, yes. and so the concept so I talked a lot about in the and I use the mineralogical example to distinguish between substance and accidents so that it's an accident, for example that the mineral halite which is the same. Material is table salt. Rock salt is the mineral halite. It can right. be different colors. That's an accident. Um, there's nothing essential about halite having to be white, or for that matter, pink or yellow or green or any of the other colors that it can be. On the other hand, what's of its substance, what's essential to it, is that it grows with a cubic habit. If you allow it to crystallize out of a liquid, it will grow into cubes. If you cleave it, if you break it, you strike it, it will tend to split into cubes. Those are things that are reflections of its internal crystal structure, and that's something that based on scientific observation over the last three or four centuries, we've concluded that those are reasonable things, and this is of course where we start to shade off. This is, this is part of where modern philosophy gets you know, to the point where it, it discards metaphysics, and you take a lot of those problems and you assign them to epistemologists, or you even assign them to linguists. Uh, Why do I choose to call something by a given name? Well, there's a reality behind that, and we've gotten lost in the sort of weeds of idealism, or at least people who exist, you know, their philosophical career exists in dialogue with idealism. And we're we're more focused on us than we are on the fact that, but there's certainly an external reality that we're talking about here hmm yeah
1: so it sounds like the there is real relevance still uh for the hylomorphism doctrine in uh current day practice of mineralogy and all sorts of of other science but then you kind of um ended last uh, last episode with the implication that we're going to need uh, maybe next steps uh, beyond uh, hylomorphism or next steps in hylomorphism to grasp fully all of the things that uh, physics and other sciences are discovering today?
0: Well, possibly, I mean, the thing about it is, is that, you know, what I was really getting prepared to say was honestly that it does a surprisingly good job uh Considering how old the doctrine is, is over 2,000 years old. Considering how, how yeah. old it certainly seems to me, at the level of knowledge that I have, that we could still use it. We can we can still use this notion as a very useful uh, way of of looking at the world and trying to you know to just the, like, that's again metaphysics is so broad it's difficult to pin it down. <laughs> but yeah. uh, all the different types of things that are well certainly. If we look at the physical world, it still seems like an extremely good doctrine. Why? Why do I say that? Well, what would the matter? Of course. So, so now we get into this distinction I alluded to last time, or I, I touched on briefly last time. That matter means a different thing to us than it means uh, than it meant to the medievals as well. Yeah. So we have the the, the, the distinction between matter and energy which is not a fundamental distinction that they particularly would have drawn. But now we have, you know, so of course, 20th century physics, one of the cornerstones of it, and certainly in the popular imagination, one of the cornerstones of it is this E equals mc squared equation that Einstein bequeathed to us. Yeah. So that's, you know, simply saying that there's a conversion factor. It happens to be a really large conversion factor, the speed of light squared, between a bit of matter and an equivalent amount of energy that it could be. You know, they're simply the same currency. So we would just have to, and from then on, your hylomorphism is simply saying, okay, well, this mass energy, which is a common enough term in physics now, this mass energy thing that could be transferred from one to another, that's your matter. And then the form is simply what, you know, at, at the most fundamental level, whatever basic particle, you know, so let's say an electron, as far as I know, mm-hmm. electrons are understood, still understood to be single particles. They're leptons. They're not composites of quarks like the heavier particles like uh, protons and neutrons are. Mm-hmm. Well, so, then, so then we get quarks, right? So electrons, quarks, photons, gluons. So mm-hmm. those would simply be the form that this particular bit of mass energy is taking at any given point. Neutrinos. The question then becomes, alright, so then we have these composite particles, alright, so protons and neutrons, and then those get assembled into larger composite particles. Atoms, ions, and then those assemble into molecules or crystals. And so we have this um, nested system, so to speak, where we have the the basics of atomic particles are part of ever larger and more complex forms until you're all the way up to the point where you can talk about (laughs) in in my field, tectonic plates or individual strata or thrust sheets or individual volcanic structures and all that sort of thing. And then you can even talk about solar systems and galaxies and and these larger and larger structures. But they are nested. And that's where, actually, rather than regarding medieval metaphysics as just this exercise in useless things, we actually... Realize that we've gathered enough data to have something important to say to resolve a medieval controversy, which is that there was, at you know, in the 13th century, there was a controversy about whether whether it made sense with Thomas Aquinas to focus on well, there's just one substantial form, the most important thing you can say about an entity, or whether you would really be better off talking about things as having nested forms, and mm-hmm. I don't. In my brief excursion, excursion to look for someone who was really a champion of that doctrine, I didn't exactly find one. Bonaventure mentions it in passing. A man named hmm. William of Avernia, one of the earlier scholastics, seems to take it for granted. But that's, you know, but I, I really don't see how you can avoid looking at reality that way. And so even, and it's funny because down to this present day, there are, of course, neo-Thomists. There are not nearly so many neo-non-Thomists scholastics, mm-hmm. and there are people who really, like, so Bernard Lonergan, for example, uh, right. who is who is mostly a dogmatic theologian, but wrote these uh, long, curious works on, so Insight, I've read Insight, 770-page monstrosity, mm. which seems to wander through the weeds for an awful long time until in the the, the last third of the book he starts uh, sewing things together in quite a dramatic and fascinating fashion. Mm-hmm. But he will, in an early chapter, and I have lost my notes that I took the year before last about that, I need to track those down, but mm-hmm. there, there was a chapter where only in retrospect did I realize he was engaging in a really kind of tortured attempt to defend you know, the singularity of form and i remember reading it you know and thinking as a chemist that what he was saying really made no sense because what what he was saying was tantamount to saying and i remember that the example in my mind was an aluminum atom but you know mm. a proton doesn't cease to be a proton an electron doesn't cease to be an electron because it's now part of this larger structure this aluminum atom that doesn't make any sense at all it really doesn't and people have engaged in a certain amount of what i frankly take to be intellectual gymnastics to try to make that make sense and I don't think it really does. I think you have, mm. to, you have to accept that things are things have multiple layers of form and that you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily a distinction you can make that this is the most important. Well, this is the highest level and most complex one, but that's not necessarily most important, certainly on the level of non-living matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, is, what is more important, the galaxy or the electrons that make it up? I mean, how? what scale am I going to measure better on? That's the that's right, question yeah. I would ask. Yeah, yeah. So really, it's, it's amazing that people do as little talking about medieval metaphysics to me, because it still seems like it's a really well-suited tool for talking about physics as we've come to know it, at least at the level, as I was saying last time, of undergraduate quantum physics, which is which is more or less where I'm at. I've made a, a few forays past that, but. Mm-hmm. So
1: it's not too much a leap uh, in uh, hylomorphism to be uh, accepting of this more nested approach? Uh, was there a reason? I, why I don't someone think so. I think it's
0: been done before.
1: Okay. But why would someone like Lonergan, was he consciously pursuing some kind of uh, agenda, as it were, uh, an intellectual project I mean, of retaining I, the unification uh, idea.
0: I think people love, know, idea? You know, personally hero worship Thomas Aquinas to the point that they're they're going to try. There are people who are going to try to defend any individual one of his doctrines almost regardless because they feel this, right. you know for loyalty to him. I mean, if you're going right. to hero worship someone, Thomas Aquinas is a good choice. Don't get me wrong.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. Well, so it sounds like metaphysics and physics remain compatible in, in a lot of substantive ways, but am I right that we're still seeing some necessary advancement in metaphysics as, as physics gets even more complicated?
0: I think there are some people who've made Efforts at that, and of course, I, you know, I, I've come, I'm coming to see this podcast partly as simply a sort of auditory set of notes about, you know, our own exploration of those topics. You know, as I, as I tried to say last time, I'm not an expert. I'm not trying to pass myself off as one. I'm just an interested bystander. Well, right. I'm engaging to the point where I suppose I'm not exactly a bystander at this point, but I certainly am a student. Right. That was a difficulty that I had when I was a graduate student. Is is to accept the implicit when of course it was left implicit it would have helped a little bit if it was stated explicitly the idea that i'm contributing to science despite the fact that i am not at the frontier yet myself i haven't yeah. i have reached the frontier of knowledge in any given subspecialty that i'm working on yet yeah. and yeah you know, that that's that's implicit in the project that we're going on here because neither of us would pass ourselves off as experts in either of these either, either uh, the physics or philosophy that we're talking about. Yeah. But we're trying to contribute to, to the discussion and and maybe the mere fact that we're mixing things up that ordinary, you know, a lot of people don't hear mixed up. Don't try to think about them both at the same time. Hopefully we're, we're contributing something.
1: And, and maybe that's one of the tough things about uh, people studying metaphysics or trying to develop a, a better understanding of science through both faith and reason because uh, we naturally are intimidated by a scientific approach that tells us implicitly that uh, our ideas mean nothing unless we're at the cutting edge if everybody is at the frontier then it's not the frontier anymore Uh, isn't there a place for folks isn't there a folk isn't there a place for folks like us who are not at the frontier, but but simply trying to cull what we can from our understanding where it is at the moment?
0: <laughs> I hope so. And part yeah. of it also that, you know, there's – the frontier has gone, if, if you'll permit me, the geometric illusion here. Uh-huh. You know, if you take human knowledge as some sort of expanding shape – you know, there's so much, you know, as as the shape expands, there's so much more frontier. And there's also the question of people have marched out, you know, people have marched straight out in the particle physics direction a very long way from the center. But if yeah. you turn a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, you see a spot where it hasn't been pushed out nearly as far. And that's certainly, mm-hmm. I could tell you if you, if you go over to the geology side, you know, I could I could go into uh, needless detail about the individual subfields that have gone out you know further. Partly partly it ends up being a case of strong personalities lead the field in a certain direction and people keep marching in that direction for a very long time before they change. Or and of course in the latter day it all depends on what grant agencies are willing to fund. And so they're they're are funding things that at least perceived to have public benefit in the immediate future that will color what areas get pushed out but so the so the question is and of course this is more than a two dimensional shape but if we're looking at things like particle physics or relativity quantum field theory you know there there is a an obvious trough I would think between that and the concepts of metaphysics I mean metaphysics has been a dirty word for centuries Interesting. People people felt for somewhat good, and you know this goes all the way back to Occam in the 14th century. This this sort of critical mm-hmm. turn, you know, Descartes is often associated with it, but Descartes was <laughs> building off of other people already. You know, the, the the these huge structures that were built in the 13th century. You know, there were there were a lot of sort of glib assumptions. I mean, Plato, good lord, could make glib assumptions at the best of them. Um, but uh-huh. Aristotle did his share, and and the, uh, the the synthesizers of the first few centuries, of the second millennium, did their share, and so in the 14th century, which what's fascinating is is that this you know critical spirit takes over, and it really kind of takes over gradually over the centuries. that we get Descartes, until we get Kant, until we get you know all the way to um, his name is escaping me, critique critique of well no, that's Kant. Um, Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, Wittgenstein, somebody like that. Somebody who really uh-huh. thinks that you know, philosophy as a whole, we can, get, we can get to the point where we can logically prove that philosophy as a whole simply needs to be abandoned and we need to move off into, I don't know, what kind of never-never land. Um, that's, you know, and, and even Wittgenstein, I believe, uh, drew back from that toward the end of his career, which was sadly short. But that's, you know, that, that is sort of the critical turn, and people have, you know, Gilson... Well, Eddie and Gilson, neo, sort of neo-Thomist, um, has this fascinating analysis of it. In uh, I think his book is called Methodical Realism. You know, this idea that we're trying to abandon everything that we can't simply absolutely prove. You know, starting from the fact that well, I exist, and there must therefore be you know, if everyth- even if everything else is an illusion, there is a me that's being deluded. Well, you can't actually go all that far from
1: there. <laughs> you right. really
0: can't. Yeah. Carter um, and then his own contributions were, you know, hacked into the ground by, you know, the, the generations following him, and you get, you know, you get idealism, where you have to ground transcendentals in something that, you know, rather than, if you just allow yourself, and I think perhaps this is an oversimplification of what Gilson meant, or maybe it's not, um, that really we can regard, certainly post-Cartesian philosophy, that, that those streams of idealism in particular, as sort of a large reductio ad absurdum, as we say in mathematics. We followed it out uh-huh. to point where we see that it does not work. Therefore, right. let's try a different tactic. Let's, right. let's allow ourselves the axiom that there's a me and there's an external reality. Maybe we can get a little further from there if we allow We're ourselves right. that. And of course, it's so bizarre that philosophy has gone this direction, all the while that physical science has come into existence and burgeoned and spread and really, you know, soaked up a lot of the people who in the 17th century would have become philosophers. Interesting. So you mean,
1: uh, while physics has become more expansive in its uh, realm of study, uh, philosophy has tended to become more and more narrowed on the individual and on the limitations of,
0: Understanding philosophy has become kind of a preserve for people who like to argue.
1: Yeah. I'm afraid,
0: I'm afraid that's my, my very jaded take on that from the philosophers. I mean, so I, so read Karl Popper, a uh, uh, philosopher of science of a, a famous and fairly influential one from the you know, mid 20th century, you know, reading some of his you know, he has fascinating ideas and then he needs to spend half a chapter. It seems refuting just idiotic objections. Just yeah. fascinatingly idiotic objections that seem to have been, you know, actually noised around and, and taken seriously. And I just, yeah, you know, I just stare at it, shaking my head. And and yeah. some of the other reading that I've done, you know, and again, not trying to pass myself off as an expert, but you know, you 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 only have mm-hmm. so much attention to pay. And when this, these are your experiences early on, you tend to turn away and look for something else to read. <laughs> right. That's, why, that's part of why Lonergan was so refreshing because Lonergan existed. I mean. The man the man existed in this bubble it seems pretty clear you know he could he could he could hold forth at a 1950 s jesuit seminary and and you know no one no one need you know, not worry himself about people you know poking holes in every last one of his assumptions and sometimes he he does a little thin ice skating from point to point but uh-huh. the construct is is well worth you know appreciating and yeah it needs to be criticized it needs to be tapped on and seen what parts Work and what parts don't. Right. But uh, when you get to the point where criticism, for criticism's sake, is is the order of the day, whether you know whether anything you know really makes that much sense or not, whether the objections really make any sense or not, I don't. I don't know. I think I don't want to go any further down that rabbit
1: hole. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but are you saying that it is now kind of a, we're at an impasse in terms of Metaphysics, we'd like to uh, expand it uh, and apply it to expanding scientific knowledge, but it's kind of become quagmired in um, the uh, the deep state of uh, philosophical, uh, intellectual uh, maxims.
0: Well, I think, I mean, there's, yeah, there's at least, so there's at least three populations you can talk about. There's scientists in general who kind of implicitly think themselves above all of this philosophy crap. There's the sort of secular philosophy community, which I think has, is, is turning. I mean, I think they've gotten to the point where they are tired of the sort of idealist trend, at least in large numbers. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a massive oversimplification I think these are tendencies that different people have in wildly different degrees, but you can identify these tendencies. These aren't individual people I'm talking about. Still less are they masses of people that monotonically think the same thing. But I think there's a weariness in secular philosophy with some of this. And then there's of course, you know, the traditionalists, Catholics and other, you know, I'm, I'm sure other populations of people who are who are very traditionalist um or at least simply, you know, are aligned with the classical and medieval philosophical project of studying the external world, and don't take the the critiques of the post 17th century and then even post, as I was saying, 14th century uh, philosophical trend overly seriously. Right. At least those three different populations. And so metaphysics is going to have been done by those by people in that third population. But because so many people have been sucked into science, which is not necessarily a bad thing, and so many people with philosophical bent have been sucked into, you know, the the critiqueist movement, that's, you know, that's that's dried up the manpower to really advance metaphysics. And it's also probably split it up and balkanized it to the point where people don't, people who really believe there is, you know, hope for a solution don't necessarily read each other's solutions and critique them and build off of each other the way that they could. Hmm. So,
1: so would you say that maybe we can um, kind of close this episode on, on that idea of, well, if we, if our podcast has as its goal to go beyond current metaphysics and to really make full use of the possible synergies between physics, metaphysics, and all of the other fields of science and faith and reason, where, where, do, we, where do we pinpoint our our efforts on uh, improving our understanding
0: and then advancing the understandings of metaphysics? I mean, the, the program that looks to me most promising is to take, you know, as, for as many people as possible, to get to the point where they are close to the frontier in physics and different branches of physics, because of course there are now several and it's um, almost impossible to master all of them. But to, you know, to at least get close to the frontier in more than one field. So say, you know, particle physics, string theory, cosmology, you know, to get close to those front. and And then to start, Looking, you know, and then to take metaphysical ideas, you know, if there are competitors, the hylomorphism, bring them out, see how they work, um, and and see what happens when, I, when you apply, when you when you take existing ideas or, or new ideas, apply them to the whole field of, you know, things that we've learned from physics. Because we now know a lot, a great deal, about a great many strange objects just in the physical world. And right. if your metaphysics is up for discussing, for describing those things, if it if it survives that many tests, to use a, philo- a philosophy of science sort of language, if you've given it that many t- chances to be falsified and you've repaired it, moved on, and gotten to the point where you can describe a, a great many objects or, or ideally the entirety of objects that we know with your metaphysics, then you'll have gotten somewhere. That's, that's advancing yeah. the field. That's, you know... With, with a very tight integration between philosophy and physics as opposed to letting them sort of wander off on their own and philosophers talk to philosophers and physicists talk to physicists.
1: Is that uh, the, um, is there anything else you'd like to say about what might be coming up in the next episode along these lines? To me, I was, I was curious about the whole idea of plurality uh, of forms that, that you've been, Mentioning the nesting of forms, etc, and one of my concerns was that uh, the uh, the uh, the future explorations might get tied into a whole fundamental debate between uh, the scientists and the theologians or philosophers about uh, how far do we want to go into this world of New possibilities and new applications, at the risk of losing a grip on tradition and the, the solidity of knowledge accumulated over time through tradition, magisterium, doctrine, etc. And I was wondering if uh, that's that's the kind of uh, content- potentially contentious territory where we're going to be heading into.
0: Yeah, I mean there will be people. See, the thing about it is, is I think. I think if you look at the last several centuries of thought in the West, the dominant trend has been rebellion against the medieval synthesis, and that, you know, religiously, politically. And there were certainly aspects of the political medieval synthesis that, you know, didn't serve human beings, didn't serve a god who loved human beings. And that's very fair and that the church had become you know i i think the you know the the wealthy corrupt prelates of the 15th and early 16th centuries have an enormous moral you know that their their burden in purgatory or hell is pretty heavy i mean considering uh-huh. considering the amount of scandal that they caused and the amount of destruction that at least indirectly traces back to them that and of course, you know, people bear their own responsibility for deciding, you know, deciding to abandon and destroy um, existing good things too. I mean, and you know, that's the whole point is that none of us can judge. You know, none of us have the information necessary to judge, and and uh, therefore we're told not to. Um, right. But I, you know, you have to, you have to suspect. You sort of have to suspect. Um, but the so so the so that's the dominant intellectual trend, right? So Protestantism rips away Northern Europe. Um, secularism, anti-clericalism rips away southern Europe and what what's left behind is that, what if you actually tried to take, you know, Catholic dogma extremely seriously and look for, alright, I mean that's that's really the whole project to me is, alright I believe in the doctrine that at the moment we call by the name of transubstantiation yes, that's the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ there on the altar. Okay, what does that mean? And are we using the best possible language to convey that truth to people today, not abandoning the truth in any way, shape, or form as it's been taught? I mean, abandoning right. possibly abandoning the way that it's been taught. I mean, I have my own kind of worries about even Thomas Aquinas' language. I think it depends too much on the concept of illusion and that to me is dangerous because aren't we worshiping the God of Truth? Are we? Yeah. Are we indulging in something that makes it sound like God is this sort of shadow puppeteer who's just casting illusion? I mean, that's. Yeah. That's not.
1: God true. is not a deceiver. God is. Uh, okay. uh, yeah, God, exactly. God is pure truth, not not deception, huh?
0: And if, in our groping around for language to describe the Eucharist, we've blundered into talking about it that way. Arguably we right. should probably change. Interesting. And that so that's really that's really the goal is to identify the actual dogmas and then, you know, rely on them, you know, let's see what happens. Let's just conduct this experiment. Let's rely on them, let's take them as experimental data. Let's take them as givens. We trust them absolutely because, you know, what else are we going to uh what else are we going to theorize with? Because so we have to have something. Right. So let's take, them just as, let's take that just as seriously as we take Newton's inverse square law and see what sort of structure we build. Because it's not like they contradict any of that stuff. They can right. all be true at the same time. It's just a question of seeing what you build with that, what the logical consequences are. If you, take, you know, if you take the parallel postulate of Euclid, you get one universe. If you took a different possible postulate in the 19th century, we found out you could describe a different geometric universe altogether. Yeah. And that's well, you know, mm-hmm. that's the sort of that's the sort of project that we're talking about here. If we take okay, so if we take what what is what is the universe like if we have divine simplicity and, you know, wave particle duality as part of it. You know, the, the whole array of you know, all of the and, and and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and time dilation and length contraction and relativity. What if all of that is true at the same time? not right. i mean that that's simply at this point an interesting intellectual exercise yeah and it be presented to people outside the faith as such while at the same time you know talking to people in, inside the faith and again not deceiving either one that you know this is our project we have no intention of going outside of that dogma although we're going to say things that will that people will probably object to because they sound different than the traditional formulation That's where we'll we'll engender um, opposition, I think.
1: Yeah. But nevertheless, it's a a worthy cause. And I think anybody who might have been listening to our podcast already and thinking that this uh, sounds a bit uh, disruptive in its approach, I think you've clarified that it's a much more integrative and holistic uh, venture. And on that note, I'd like to end this episode with a very promising outlook for future discussions that really shed new light in very constructive, albeit very thought-provoking ways. Shall Shall we end it there for today?
0: I think that sounds good.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Good to be back in conversation with you and looking forward to the next one.